Jesus, we thank you for um, this space, that there is space that we can gather. And it is good to be a doorkeeper at your temple. And it is better to spend time with you in your house, with your people. As we open your holy word, I ask that you would stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things that you would have us know, say, and do, with love, with charity, with kindness, with justice, with humility, for the building up of others, and for the glory and honor of your most holy name. Amen. Uh, today is the second Sunday of Christmas. If you didn't know, uh, Christmas is more than a day, even if you've ever heard the song, 12 Days of Christmas, that's a thing. And uh, in the church, uh, the, the, the Feast of the Nativity, the, this season is meant to be kind of prolonged. Now, what's crazy is that our secular and, and civic calendar has already rushed on past the new year. Like, we've already had New Year's Eve, we've already had New Year's Day, we've already had resolutions, new gym memberships, all those things. I was in the store yesterday, and there's already Valentine's Day stuff out, which means in a month after that happens, there's going to be Easter candy. Just, like, we just, like, we're still in the season of Christmas, and we're probably a month away from getting Easter eggs in Walmart. Like, let's just pause on that. And so while our civic calendar has already rushed beyond new beginnings, the church, the people of God, are still hanging out in Christmas time because the advent of Christ in our humanity is that big of a deal. And so uh, today's lesson is going to be very, very important to the advent and nativity of our Lord, and yet it feels very un-Christmas. It feels very un-Christmas-y. Um, it's a lesson on power, politics, deception, manipulation, government-sponsored infanticide, refugees, and suffering. And while Christmas is a time of feasting and joy, the story we're going to read today from the Gospels offsets our nostalgia and our sentimental leanings with the most wonderful time of the year. And it highlights the darkness that Christ came into. We often talk about dark, darkness and light metaphorically, but the darkness that Christ came into was no metaphor. It was legit darkness, and so is ours today. Um, I grew up in church. I often say I, the truth, which is I was born on Thursday morning, November 3rd, 1983 at 8.49 a.m., Wichita General Hospital, and on Sunday I was in the church nursery. Like, that's how fast I made it to church and grew up in church my entire life. I've, this year I'll be in the ministry 20 years and um, I've been teaching and preaching publicly for 15 years and our church is 10 years old and I must confess to you, I have never heard this sermon preached. I've never heard this text preached in my 38 years of being in church. And as someone who's preached the Bible for 15 years, I've never preached this passage. And I wonder why. It's a, it's a sobering one. So the title of today's message 
have some fun with this, is will the real king of the Jews please stand up? Will the real king of the Jews please stand up? And the big idea here is that God placed Jesus, his son, on the world stage at the same time as Herod. And I think to contrast, who was really the king? Herod had great wealth and worldly power. Jesus had only weakness. Herod had seven palaces. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. You know the song, Away in a Manger, No Crib for a Bed? The real king of the Jews had no crib for a bed. While er, who, the king of the Jews everyone thought was the real king of the Jews had seven palaces. And we see in this Christmas story, this feels very un-Christmas to us Americans, how God is contrasting the way of the world and the leadership of the world with his actual kingship and his actual lordship. In that um, the true king, the true king of kings, the true lord of lords, was in the cave, the grotto, the manger, not one of seven palaces. So Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. So if you turn there, uh, we don't have it on the screen, so if you want to follow along with me, um, you can use a Bible. There's Bibles in the back. You can use your phone. And uh, this is the story of the wise men or the magi. So we're going to read, uh, I think, 20-something verses. Actually, the whole chapter. Yeah, the whole chapter. Let's do that. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, who has been born in the phrase you should see here? Is king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Just highlight that. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, so this is apparently after, uh, you know, it always bothers me when, when, when um, like on Hallmark, or HGT, like when the wise men show up that night, it's like, no. <laughs> it happened afterwards. Um, they went to the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, 
they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had, but when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Hear the word of our Lord. Has anyone ever heard this text preached on? Pretty crazy. Two chapters into the New Testament, though. Matthew is the only one who tells us the story. It's not in Luke. It's not in Mark. It's not in John. Only Matthew tells us this. We, of course, know Matthew was a Roman tax collector, worked for the government. Some speculate that he may have had inside information because of his proximity to the Roman guard. It's just fascinating that the only person that gives us this information was a government worker. And a lot of times, and especially in, um, in our American Christianity, um, Government and politics is so, I don't know, like electrified. There's so much dynamite attached to politics. But what's fascinating is like one chapter in, (laughs) the second chapter of the New Testament, we see the story of Christ anchored in a political backdrop of a mad king who executes an infanticide because he's afraid of losing his power. And all through Matthew's gospel, he highlights these Roman things. And it's just a fascinating thing to me that um, we often don't think of the nativity of our Lord in political language. Um, But as you study, as you look at things John the Baptist said, and uh, especially Matthew's account, um, it's hard to celebrate Advent without recognizing the Roman politics that were intertwined in the story of Jesus. A couple of things about Herod that are fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Herod, this Herod, was called the king of the Jews, and he was the king of the Jews for 37 years. He was considered the greatest king outside of, Herod, outside of David and Solomon. He was the richest man in the world. Many people speculate, because he, he did so much building, um, um, like how did he get his money? A lot of people think that he 
had invented or somehow come up with um, an ancient world version of Viagra, and it was the only one in the world, and he had he was so secretive about it that he would kill anybody who shared the recipe, and I, that's how um, people believe he got his great wealth, just kind of fascinating. Um, he was ruthless. He was cruel. As you can tell, he was jealous, afraid, crazy, and paranoid of losing his power. At one point, he got cross with the high priest, and so he had him drowned. Drowned a clergy member in the Sanhedrin. He assassinated his brother because he wasn't getting along with him. He was married and loved his wife, um, but he thought she was plotting against him, so he had her killed. He had many sons. He killed two of his sons so that they wouldn't succeed him. And five days before his death, he killed his third son because he didn't want that son to succeed him as king. Caesar famously said that he'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's family member because of how brutal this man was. Most people estimate that over his 37-year reign, he killed over a million people. This is the Herod that was in charge when Jesus was born. And so when Matthew says, in the days of Herod the king, he's anchoring it with this guy. And he was called the king of the Jews because he was the king of Judea. Had a lot of favor with Rome, was very loyal to Rome, and so Rome liked him being in charge of the Jews because he held everybody, held God's people in check because he was so ruthless. So when the Magi show up to his palace and ask to see the new king of the Jews, and he gets troubled, you can see that this is not like an out-of-the-ordinary thing for this guy. Because he killed his wife and three sons over succession. And you can understand when it says in verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. There's a reason why all of Um, Jerusalem was troubled with this guy. There's about four things I just want to highlight for you. won't go in depth to them. But as we read this story that feels very un-Christmas but is core to the story of Jesus, um, there's a couple of things that I think of. The first is things are not often what they appear to be. Who was the real king of the Jews? If you were to go to the ancient world at this time and run into anybody in Jerusalem, and, you, and if you were to ask them, hey, who's the king of the Jews? Unless there are some shepherds who are working in the field, or Elizabeth and Zechariah, <laughs> most everyone would go, oh, Herod, the guy in the power, that's the king of the Jews. But what we know is, actually, Jesus was the king of the Jews. And today, like that phrase, King of the Jews, is associated with Jesus because of the crucifixion and the title that Pilate put on his cross, saying this is the King of the Jews, kind of a fascinating thing. But in that day, if you were to ask people in Jerusalem, who's the King of the Jews, they would not answer Jesus. They would answer Herod. We, um, if you were to ask people in that day, who's the most important person in the world? they would answer Caesar. They wouldn't answer Jesus. But what's fascinating is 2,000 years later, we name our family members, we name our children after people who are associated with this child that Herod tried to kill. My mom's name is Mary. My dad's name is Stephen. 
the follower of Jesus. My brother's name is Matthew. My sister is Elizabeth. I'm going to trust you here. I have two middle names. You know me as Drew, but my real name is Andrew Joseph James Witt. Don't ever call me that, by the way. (laughs) But three of my names are named after people associated with Jesus. Today, we name our children after people associated with Jesus, and we name our dogs Caesar. We name our pizza after Caesar. We name our casinos after Caesar. But if you were to show up in the ancient world and ask people who's the most important person in the world that people will name their kids after, you would answer Caesar. And if you were to tell them, yeah, eventually people are going to name their dogs after this dude, you wouldn't believe it. Things are not often as they appear to be with God. The second thing that stands out to me in the story is that the kingdom is often upside down. It is upside down. The kingdom of heaven is upside down. We see Herod using his power and his authority for self-preservation and protection to the, to the ends of murdering babies because he's paranoid. But what we see in the kingdom is that the one who has true power, the one who has true authority, actually empties it for the sake of other people in Jesus. The way of the world is to use whatever power and privilege you have, and I know those are triggering words for people, but the, the way of the world is that that exists for you, but the way of the kingdom is that it's actually, you leverage those things for the, for the sake of other people. It's what, it's what Philippians 2 is all about, that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself for the benefit of other people. We see that in Jesus And it is so powerful to see the lesson God is teaching us about true leadership and true power and true responsibility that he sent Jesus at the same time as Herod, the great king of the Jews, to contrast the wealth, the power, the direction in which it flows. It's fascinating. If you want to learn more about that in in the Sunday Bulletin, there's a a link to a sermon by Pete Scazzaro where he digs into this very deeply and highlights the lesson God is trying to teach us inherit. The third thing that stands out to me is that the Holy Family became a political refugee family. They had to flee their country because of a political ruler who was trying to kill them. Most of us, I don't think, at least in my case, let's say it for me, I rarely think of Mary and Joseph as refugees. I rarely think of Jesus as a refugee. They fled to Egypt at the order of an angel for two years to blend in, to hide. They had to go to another country to hide because of a political ruler. One of the great things that, that um, scratches my, I scratch my head with is, is uh, in our days of political polarization and, and tribalism, um, I often run into people who say they love Jesus and say they worship Jesus and say they love the Bible and then in the next breath, start to talk very ungraciously and un, without any compassion on people who are fleeing terrible situations from their country to come to our country for safety. And it, it always fascinates me how you can say you love Jesus and you can say you believe that the Bible is inherently true and then yet have no compassion towards those 
who are fleeing similar situations to come to a country that is supposed to that offer safety. It, it just boggles my mind. I don't, it doesn't matter the, the politics involved. It's just like, how do Christians not have compassion on political refugees when our king was a refugee king? Sure, it's quiet. Last one, which is probably the most crucial one to me that stands out and will be maybe the most uh, triggering. Uh, I With hesitancy, um, bring it up, uh, just because the state of our world is that worshipers of Jesus should watch out for the Herods who try to co-opt our faith. Herod pretended to worship Jesus, brought in the clergy to say, I want to worship him too. Tell me where he's at. But his real motive wasn't to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus, for Herod, was a political calculation for how he could stay in charge. One of the themes of the New Testament is wolves in sheep's clothing. From the gospel accounts all the way to Jude, if there's one consistent thing in the scriptures in the New Testament outside of the gospel message of Jesus, it's that there are wolves in sheep's clothing, people who are ravenous, who appear to be sheep. Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares. Jesus talks about sowing the good seed, and at night the enemy comes in and sows weeds. I mean, read, read Jude's letter right before Revelation. This is the theme. What's crazy is that the wise men were fooled. You ever thought about that? The wise men were fooled by Herod. They had, God had to speak to them through a dream to say, no, 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 don't listen to him. Blows my mind that, that these people who had understood the prophets and the star and had gone through great lengths to travel and then to bring treasures to worship the newborn king were apparently deceived by Herod. Like, why else would they need a dream? Why else would God need to appear to them in a dream to tell them what was actually going on? Yeah, I, I think this not only happened in the ancient world, but it, it's happened all throughout history, and it's happened in our day, and it happens in our day today. Um, I think if you know me, I, one of the greatest compliments someone gave me was a couple years ago, someone who's very into politics that I disagree with a lot on stuff. Um, they introduced me as someone to, as their very nonpartisan pastor. And I thought, that's one of the greatest compliments anyone's given me, is that even they understand I, I don't fit into the, two, the two-party system. And, and so I, uh, I really... I really hate American politics. Like, I really, I think you know that. Um, and I always look at things through a theological lens of, like, how does this affect the church's witness? Uh, today's January 2nd. In four days, we'll have the one-year anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots. Now, out of all of the things that disturbed me of that day, 
the thing that most disturbed me was seeing our sacred symbols in the name of Jesus next to neo-Nazis and conspiracy theorists yelling, hang Mike Pence. Now, I can understand when people are crazy and mad because they lost an election or whatever. But I don't understand how Christians can show up and do that. I don't understand how anyone who takes the, the life and teachings of Jesus seriously can show up and, and do that, especially next to people who have no bearing on the truth. We had a lot of people leave our church after <laughs> a sermon that I gave that next Sunday on the problem that the American church has. Forget partisan politics. When a cross shows up to a political rally like that, in very unchristian tones, where Jesus tells Peter in the garden to put down the sword, live by the sword, die by the sword. When Jesus tells James and John who want to call down fire on Samaria, he goes, no, no, no. We love our enemies. We bless them. The American church has a theological discipleship problem when our Lord's cross shows up at our nation's capital. It's hard to believe it was a year ago. A colleague of mine by the name of uh, Tish Warren Harrison, she's an Anglican priest at my friend's church in Austin. She wrote an article on Christianity Today. I've linked to it if you want to check it out. It was probably one of the best articles I read last year. The title of it was, We Worship with the Magi, Not MAGA. I thought it was one of the most brilliant titles. She was the only person that I've come across to make the connection between Herod trying to deceive the Magi to protect his political power with what happened a year ago at the nation's capital. She's the only person that I've seen make the connections between a ruler co-opting clergy and a faith as a political calculus. It's a fascinating article. Um, I've linked it in our thing if you want to check it out. As I was studying this this week, and I've been thinking of this for like four weeks. I've been chewing on this message for four weeks. Um, a fellow pastor sent me a video um, and I've linked it down. You don't want to watch it, but in case you want to watch it, um, I've linked it. And uh, he said, uh, have you seen this? And I said, no. And he goes, you need to watch it, but beware, it's not going to be fun. And it was um, a couple of weeks ago, our previous president at a church um, in Dallas. And as I watched this we need to save Christmas in America, in the oil industry, in the military, message at a church from a pulpit and the love affair between the pastor and this and, and the president and the standing ovations he got and everyone with their cell phone, it, it was thoroughly the most unchristian thing I'd ever seen. And I could not think of, this is Herod. It, regardless of partisan lines, a king coming into the house of God, cozying up to clergy for the sake of getting a voter block, it made me want to throw up because everything about it was unchristian. And 
if the other side did it, I'd say the same thing, and, and they do it in different ways. Um, but it really confused me how thousands of people in this church had their cell phones out. It was the best Christmas present they got. Standing over, they were eating everything up, talking about we need to be able to say Merry Christmas again. You know, they didn't like the trees that my wife, you know, did at the white. Like, like it was crazy, and it was, if you know the story of Herod, I don't know how that happens. I hate talking about presidents. I hate talking about politics. But I bring it up on this Sunday because this text was selected for me by the lectionary. Is friends, we live in a day similar to the day of Jesus where there are principalities in the ways of the world that go against the kingdom of heaven and will use followers of Jesus and worshipers of Jesus as a pawn for political means. And in case you don't know, that's not right. The king of kings is not for sale. The king of kings is not a pawn. The king of kings is not a political calculus by any party. The real king of the Jews, the real king of the Gentiles, the real king of kings wasn't Herod, wasn't Caesar, wasn't Pilate, wasn't Felix. And in our time, isn't any American president. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who happens to be a missionary on American soil. And it's in that order that our allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, not any American agenda, whether that's progressive or conservative. It is the kingdom of heaven we seek first. It is King Jesus that we seek first. It is King Jesus that we worship, not a political ideology. And so I, it's, it feels very un-Christmas, right? But I want to leave you with the question. What king are you serving? Are you serving the real king of the Jews? The real king of the Gentiles? The real king of kings? Are you is your allegiance to Jesus? Or, in maybe subtle ways, is your allegiance to Herod? Or fill in the blank. As we wrap up the Christmas season and we head on to other things, I hope to leave you with this sobering anchor. So as we go into next year, and as Christmas comes next year, and as Advent comes next year, you'll have the, the discipleship and the spiritual formation to see that the wreaths are, like, this is all good, this is beautiful. But the advent of Jesus, there's so much suffering, there's so much pain, there's so much loss in the story. And I love the most wonderful time of the year. I love the feasting. I love the joy. I love it. And at the same time, we must be honest and recognize and see the pain and the heartache that is mixed in and is the backdrop of the good news that Jesus has come into the darkness to set us free. Let's pray.
Jesus. I lament that the world in which you came into was that in which one person could order the killing of so many children and it happened. And Lord, we lament that in our day today, that same level of evil, that same level of darkness, the same level of deception, the same level of anti-love, and anti-Christ, and anti-kingdom of heaven is still here in the world in which we live. And we cry, come, Lord Jesus. Set us free. Set us free from ideologies that are rooted in the ways of this world and in the ways of men. Set us free from every distraction and stronghold that would keep us off the narrow path and keep us out of step and out of sync with your kingdom of heaven, your law, which is love. Lord, we give you thanks for being such a contrast to people like Caesar, to being a contrast to all the Herods. For being a contrast in your teaching that The Gentiles lord their authority around, but not so with your followers, that we are to serve, that we are to love and die to our enemy. Help us, God. Help us.